So we're back in our series, Rethink, where we are talking about what does it mean to live like Jesus. We know that to live like Jesus means that we have to learn to think like him. And that's a process that won't be completed until we actually stand before the Lord someday. But in that process, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have the Word of God to guide us. And so we want to become more and more like Jesus, and especially in how we think. Today, we're going to talk about rethinking the future, rethinking the future. And so in order for us to do that, I want you to have your Bibles ready, and you can turn open to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13. Now, I think it's really uh, timely that we're talking about the future. And that's because I just sense that there are a lot of people who are worried about the future, not just, not just locally, nationally, but globally as well. When I travel and I talk to people, I just am amazed at how concerned they are politically, uh, socially, economically, even spiritually, even religiously. Where are we going? What's the future hold for us? How about you? Are you a little nervous about the future? you have some angst about what lies ahead? I know the first followers of Jesus were worried about the future. They were worried about their future, personally. And uh, their worry was uh, very selfish because they wanted to make sure that they were in line with Jesus when he ushered in his new kingdom because they were convinced that Jesus was going to establish his new kingdom. And that's why they've been arguing with each other. That's why the, they've been disagreeing with each other, vying for political position. I'm the greatest. I'm the most important. In fact, two of them, James and John, their mother, now I don't know if they put her up to it or she did it on her own, but she approached Jesus and said, you know, when you establish your kingdom, I'd like it very much if one of my sons sat on your left side and the other son sat on the right side. In other words, if they could just be like your, your, uh, you know, your number twos, your VPs in your new kingdom, which didn't go over well with the other disciples, by the way. You can imagine, right? So everybody wants to make sure they, they've got position, they've got, they've got power, because they expect Jesus to rule, and they're going to rule with him. Now, Mark 13 tells us that they left the Temple Mount, and they went over to the Mount of Olives. They crossed the Kidron Valley, and they went up there. And that's why sometimes you'll hear a passage like Mark 13 referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It just simply means that Jesus spoke these words we're going to look at from the Mount of Olives or on the Mount of Olives. It's also recorded in Matthew chapter 24. We'll be dipping into that a little bit because Matthew gives us a more expansive version of Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21 discusses it as well. So they're walking away from the Temple Mount. They're going up the Mount of Olives. I can envision them because I've been on the Mount of Olives, looking back and saying what we read in verse 1. One of the disciples says to Jesus, would you look at those buildings? Now, the greatest building is the temple itself, but there's many other buildings on the Temple Mount. Would you look at those buildings? Aren't they magnificent? Look at those white stones. And he was right. Scholars tell us that hundreds of miles in any direction, there was no building comparable to the temple and the temple complex. And it was still being built up. It had been under construction for 40 years. It was still being worked on. It is said that some of the stones in there weighed as much as 600 tons, which is an is a engineering marvel to begin with, how they got it up there and put it all together. 
It was gold trimmed. In fact, the, the roof of the temple was gold. And it said that if you looked at it in the sunlight, it was blinding. The Talmud said, if you have never seen the, the temple under construction, then you have never seen a glorious building. So there was a lot of pride about the temple. So when Jesus responds to it the way he does, it must have caused their jaws to drop and their eyes to pop wide open. Because he says to them in verse 2, yes, look at these great buildings, but they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Some of you have perhaps been with me to Israel. We've been in Jerusalem. We've seen those stones. As the archaeologists have found them, they're just laying the way they found them, toppled, rolled over, broken. And so Peter, James, John, and Andrew come privately to Jesus, and they ask him in verse 4, they say, tell us, when is this going to happen? What, will, what sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Now, that's when it's really important we go back to Matthew for just a moment, because Matthew, Matthew kind of defines their question a little bit more. You know, when they ask and they say to him, what will be the sign that these things are going to happen? Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, tell us when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? So he kind of dials the microscope down a little bit on it. And he says, it's not just that, they're, that, that they ask Jesus, what are the signs that this is going to happen? They're asking specifically, when will the temple be toppled? And what are the signs that the end of the world is happening and you're returning. Now, in the disciples' mind, it's all simultaneous. The temple will be leveled. That's what they heard Jesus say. And in their minds, that must mean the end of the world has come and, you have re and you're returning again. So Jesus responds to that. And as a response to that, he gives them clues, signs about when the temple will be destroyed and signs of when he's going to return. But they're not, they're not sandwiched together. Is that a simultaneous event? But the way he says it, the way it's recorded, makes it sound like that. So we have to kind of pull the, the threads apart a little bit and see what was meant for the disciples in their time and what is meant for the future time still to come. And what is God saying to us about the day and age that we're living in? But there's one verse I want to draw your attention to for a moment. It's the, it's the end of verse 8. Jesus says, with all these signs, this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to give you some signs, but remember this. <clears throat> They're like the birth pains a woman has before she delivers her baby. You know, Marsha and I <clears throat> discovered with our first child that not, not all contractions mean you're going to have the baby. There are Braxton Hicks or false contractions that come along. So when you get to your second and third child, if you have more children, you, you don't get so uh, upset, you know, when the contractions start because it may not be time yet. But when it is time to give birth, even then, there's a delay. First, the contractions are, you know, apart, a minute or two. Then they get closer and closer until they're one on top of each other, and it's time to deliver that baby. Jesus says, think about that in terms of my return. Watch the signs. Look for the frequency at the very end, when the world ends, when I return, it'll be one thing on top of each other. 
So now he talks about the signs. So let's look at them together. Signs for the disciples, signs for us. I want to start out by what he says initially, and that is the signs of, or the sign of false prophets or false teachers, false messiahs. Come back, if you will, to verse 5. Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. That is so important. Don't let anyone mislead you. Now, if Jesus is saying, don't let anyone mislead you, it means that somebody's going to try to mislead you. There'll be misleading things that are said and taught and done. Don't be fooled by them. He says, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. Jump over to verse 21. He says, then if anyone tells you, look, here is Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and form signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, if possible, even God's chosen. Now, what that means is it's going to be so bad both before the temple's destroyed and throughout periods of history as those contractions happen, and especially before the return of Christ, that even those who are believers will, will experience some tremors, some shaking in their faith, will, will struggle with some doubts. And that's really important for us to understand. Because you don't really struggle with doubts. You don't really struggle with with, with wanting to kind of go with the flow if you're convinced of what the truth is. You know what the truth is. And there are a lot of, a lot of people who call themselves Christians today that really don't know what the truth is, aren't anchored on that truth. Are you? Jesus says, don't be misled. And of course, there's, there's just been false teachers throughout all of history. There were false teachers before Jesus, after Jesus, or false teachers this very day. And by the way, a false teacher does not necessarily have to be a false messiah, does not necessarily have to be a religious person. Although I believe secularism is a form of religion because it holds to a belief system, rationalism, etc. Anybody, anything that offers itself as an alternative to Jesus or an accompaniment to Jesus and says, if you believe this, if you vote this way, if you vote for me, if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you accept my teachings, you'll be saved. They may not say saved, but your life will be better. I will make your life better. That is a false teacher. That's false teaching. If it's counter to Jesus, if it's an alternative to Jesus. That's why First John, when he write, in First John, when John writes his little epistles, he says, he says, the spirit of Antichrist is all, already with us. There's already all kinds of philosophies and teachings out there that say, this is the way. This is the way. This is salvation. This is hope. This is what matters. So, you know, we live in, in all of that static around us, all that noise. Got to know what the truth is. All right, then he points out, and he says, there's going to be what I, what I call political and economic turmoil. Political and economic turmoil. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 he says, And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pains. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to local councils and beaten in the synagogues. 
You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be political intrigue. And whenever there's political issues, there's economic issues. Now, if you ever notice this or not, but oftentimes when, when nations get into trouble politically or economically, they look for a scapegoat. There's got to be somebody to blame. And throughout, throughout history, the Jews have been blamed for lots of things to this very day. And Christians are to blame oftentimes or are said to be to blame for the ills, the problems that we experience. It's our intolerance. It's our, it's our narrowness. It's our following Jesus only and promoting Jesus only and calling sin out. We're the cause. We're the problem. And while we are only beginning to taste that here, much of the world has been experiencing that for a very long time. For a very long time. I was just reading something the other day, some statistics. It's estimated that over the last 2,000 years, about 70 million Christians have lost their lives because they named Jesus as their Savior and followed his truth. 70 million Christians in half in the last century. It's estimated that between 2000 and 2010, 1 million Christians have been martyred for the faith in Christ. That's about 100,000 a year. That's about 100,000 a year. It's real. It's happened, it's happening, and it will continue to happen and even increase before Christ returns. Jesus goes on, he gives them some signs and he gives us some more signs. He talks about what I call social breakdown. Social breakdown, familial breakdown. Society just kind of breaks down as he describes it here. Look at verse 12. He says, a brother will betray his brother to death. And a father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures the end will be saved. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, we, we get a little bit more of a nuance on this from Jesus. He says in verse 12, he says, sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So sin will be rampant. Love of many will grow cold. It's every man, every woman, every person for themselves. Even to the point, even the point of betraying a family member, especially when you're in a culture that's saying you cannot be a Christian and be part of our culture. If you are, you'll be jailed, you'll be beaten, or you'll be put to death. You have to believe a certain way. And I have met people like that around the world who have been disinherited from their family, who've been ostracized from the family, where fathers will no longer call them their son or their daughter because they've turned to Christ. And they're left with nothing. They're left with nothing. I know a young woman in a southeastern country, I've met her several times, who is beaten by her own brother for turning to Christ. And every time she went back to that village, he would beat her. But she couldn't help but go back. She loved her family. She loved her village until one day that brother came to faith in Christ. And then her whole family. And then the village was revived by the, by the love of God. 
So it's real. It happens. It happens in the world. It happens around us. Jesus said you'll see it increase before that temple collapses, and you'll see it increase before I return the birth pains. Well, there's another sign that Jesus gives, and it's, it's, it's physical. It's, it's, it's nature. It's, it's cosmic. Let, let me show you what I mean. We read about it a little bit earlier uh, in the passage. Uh, if you come down to verse 8, he says, Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. And if you go over to um, uh, verse 24, he says, Right before I return, he says, At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And we read about that in other passages of Scripture. So Jesus says there's going to be natural calamities. There has been throughout all of history, all of history, this very day. But it seems that Jesus is indicating there'll be, before the Temple Mount, there'll be greater earthquakes that'll happen, more natural catastrophes taking place. And before my return, an extreme amount of natural catastrophes taking place. You know, Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all of nature groans and cries out for redemption. Did you know that? Because God created this world. He created nature. And it's like nature has sometimes a better sense than we have that things aren't right. And nature itself is saying, in essence, come, Lord, and recreate. Put us, put us back to what you intended us to be as though nature has a voice. And the Bible tells us that when Christ returns someday, he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And you and I are not going to spend eternity in heaven. We're going to spend it here on the new earth. The way God always intended it to be. The way he always intended it to be. Go back to a couple of summers ago when I did a series on heaven. We talked about that. So nature cries out. So, you know, I don't know what you think about climate change and what you believe about that, and is it humanly caused, it's cyclical, whatever it is, but, you know, I look at it and I just go, it's more evidence. It's, it's more sign that something's not right. There's a convulsing that's taking place. Some people look at the cosmological signs. They say, well, that's, you know, that's metaphorical. We don't think that's literal. I look at it and I go, you know, Jesus said it. He didn't indicate it was going to be a metaphor. I take it literally. That before he returns, things are going to be shaken up. In the heavens, whatever that means and whatever that looks like, which then kind of leads us to, to a, a part of the passage which is challenging, but, but we're going to try to gain some insight from it, okay? Because the debate people have is, are all the things that Jesus is saying here, do they relate to the fall of the temple, or is it relating to the future when Christ returns? Because they seem so closely connected. So let's see if we figure it out. Verse 14. Jesus says, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. You go back to Matthew chapter 24, and Matthew records it this way. Verse 15. The day is coming, Jesus said, when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. We put them both together, and what Jesus is saying is, listen, I want to tell you what Daniel was talking about. You're going to see this abomination of desolation. You're going to see this desecration of the temple, the holy place. And he's calling on Daniel's prophecy 100 or so years ago, a couple hundred years ago from Jesus' time, 
when Daniel is prophesying that in the temple there's going to be a terrible desecration that will happen. And most Bible scholars agree that what Daniel is talking about happened in 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid leader of the Seleucid dynasty, came down from Syria, ransacked Jerusalem, tried to force the people to give up the law and, and live as Gentiles, and to worship Zeus. He went into the temple, he set up a statue to Zeus, and he offered swine flesh on the altar. Pretty bad if you're a Jew. An abomination of desolation. But it seems that what Jesus is saying is that is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in 70 AD. So Jesus is prophesying something will happen 40 years in the future. When indeed the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem, flattened Jerusalem, knocked the stones over, went into the temple, set up the banners of Rome where they worshiped the emperor and desecrated the temple by saying, now you will worship the emperor. But that is a foreshadowing, if I understand the text properly, that's a foreshadowing of an even future event. The Bible seems to indicate that someday the temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount, and that the Antichrist will show up, the master deceiver, and he will desecrate the temple by saying, all worship belongs to me. Then, Jesus says, the stars will be shaken, and then I'll return. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but if you want to read more about that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You say, Pastor, this is all fascinating, but I've got to tell you something that's kind of confusing as well. I mean, is there anything we can be really certain about? I mean, is there something I could just kind of grab onto here? Yeah, there is. There's, there's, there's some things we can be absolutely certain about and need to focus on. We can be certain Christ is going, to be, is going to return. And we can be certain we don't know exactly when it's going to be. <laughs> but there is a way that Jesus gives us that we are to live our lives. Whether he returns in our lifetime or whether, and all of us, by the way, are going to die. You know that, right? Unless Christ returns. We're all going to meet the Lord. So there's a certain way we need to live as we anticipate that. And it boils down to one simple phrase that I have for you. You can write it down if you want. Christ is calling all of us to live wide awake. Not sleepy. Not heads down. Not oblivious to what is happening around us, but wide awake. Look what he says at, uh, uh, if you come down to the passage, look what he says at verse 33. He says, and since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip, he says. And he leaves his servants in charge. And when he comes back, when he comes back, the servants need to be alert and ready for him to return. He said, Jesus is coming back. You need to be alert and ready for his return or for your departure. In fact, uh, at the end of, uh, of that passage of Scripture, Jesus is speaking and uh, in verse 37, he says, I say to you what I say to everyone, watch, watch, watch for him. So would you say that you're spiritually wide awake today? So what am I, what am I supposed to be wide awake to? Glad you asked the question. Let me give you some suggestions from the passage. We need to be wide awake to the truth of God's word. One simple little Verse 
verse 31. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never disappear. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is all the philosophies, all the policies, all the political views, all the false saviors out there, they're all going to pass away, but I guarantee you my truth, my revealed word is never going to pass away. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what God's word says about morality, about sexuality, about marriage, about being single, about heaven, about hell, about love, about purpose, about materialism? I could go on. Do you know what God says about life? Do you know what God honestly says about a lot of the things our culture is debating and arguing about these days? Do you know what God says? If you don't know what God says, you can easily be misled. Tim Stafford used to be an editor at Christianity Today. He's an author. Tells of a friend of his by the name of uh, Stephen Bilsinki, who is a graduate of Notre Dame, PhD, smart guy, who for his church taught, uh, taught their classes, their Sunday school classes for confirmation. And he said, at the beginning of every confirmation class, Bill would put a jar of jelly beans on the table and he'd say to the students, how many jelly beans do you think are in the jar? And they would write down how many they thought were in the jar. And then he would go over to a, a sheet of paper and he would say, now tell me, um, what's your most favorite song? And he'd write down the favorite songs. If he had 10 students, he'd write down 10 songs. Then he would go back and he would say, okay, there are seven, I'm making this up, there are 717 beans in the jar. Check your answers. Did anybody get it? And most of the time, nobody, you know, had the right answer. They'd be close, but not the right answer. You had to have the right answer to get the jar of jelly beans. Then he would go over to the sheet of paper, and he would say, okay, now, which one is the favorite song? And they'd all laugh at him. That's, that's ridiculous. It's subjective. We each gave you our favorite song. There can be no the favorite song. Then he would look at them, he would say, when it comes to how you form your worldview, when you decide what you're going to believe, is it like the jar of jelly beans? Or is it more like this sheet with everybody's favorite song? And he said, without fail, every student looked at him and said, it's like the sheet with the favorite songs. I arrive at what I believe and my worldview based on what I think, what I feel, what I like, what fits, what works for me. Not a fact that I have to adjust my life to. Now, that's, that story's from several years ago. I mean, this is fashionable now. The song sheet. It's fashionable now to, to just form my own beliefs, what I think, regardless of what you think, as long as it works for me. That's why you got to know what the truth is, especially those of you who are parents raising kids. they got to know what the truth is because they face untruth all the time. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a fascinating passage of Scripture. I just want to read a portion of it to you. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 20. When Isaiah describes his day, it eerily sounds like our day today. He says in verse 20, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. 
What's sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold? They take bribes to let the wicked go free, and they punish the innocent. Therefore, just as the fire licks up stubble and dry grass and shrivels in the flame, so their roots will not, excuse me, so their roots will rot and their flowers wither. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of heaven's armies. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Did you get that? When you move away from God, when you move away from God's truth, you move into darkness. When you move into darkness, there are consequences that come with that. And we see it in our culture today. We see what happens when you don't live by the truth. It spawns the chaos we experience today. I'm not trying to be harsh, by the way. I'm not trying to be negative, you know. But, you know, at some point we have to stand up once in a while and say, this is, this is what God says. And let's not bury heads in the sand and let's not just say, you know, let's all kind of sing kumbaya and pretend everything's okay. Everything's not okay. And let's figure out how do we not only survive this but thrive. How do we move forward with Christ? What are you thinking? Wish we had time for discussion. Second uh, thing that we need to be wide awake to is God's purpose. One little verse again, one little verse, verse, verse 10. It says, for the good news must first be preached to all nations. Then I'm coming back. Now, what does that mean? Anthony, Anthony Hookema, a scholar, theologian, says, it does not mean that every individual and every nation, you know, has to be preached to. What it does mean is this. He says, every nation must know and hear the gospel so that that nation is held accountable to the truth. They can either reject it or they can accept it. And that's why at Whitdale Church, we are committed to bringing the hope of the gospel to the furthest nations, to the most difficult places. That's why we're trying to raise $1.5 million so we'll have 12,000 churches or more by 2022. Because as those churches multiply, the gospel goes out and more and more people hear the good news of God's grace and that nation's held to accountability and Christ returns. As a little boy, God called me to the mission field. But God never opened the door. I couldn't figure it out. I volunteered to go across the mountains at the age of six and bring the gospel to a bunch of natives in Papua New Guinea. My mom said I couldn't go. I've told you that before. But that call has always stayed in my heart. But, you know, sometimes God just waits before he releases. And it wasn't until I showed up at Wooddale Church. It was a little bit before then, but when I showed up at Wooddale Church, that God really opened that door because you have such a mission heart. And so when I'm gone five or six times a year, to teach and train these pastors. I have such a heart for them, such a love for them. I can speak their language, not literally, but I know their spirits, and, and, and I'm able to share with them on behalf of the gospel. We're seeing God do tremendous things. And you're such a wonderful partner in that. And you're going to meet people someday. They're going to walk up to you and say, because you're faithless, your generosity, I heard about Jesus. I heard about Jesus. God is doing things right now all around the world in the most remote places because of your faithfulness. And I want you to know that because that's a huge responsibility that you and I have. Huge responsibility. Finally, we need to be awake to the consequences of living on mission with God. I've already given you those verses. The consequences of living on mission with God. What I mean is this. If you're going to live for Jesus these days... I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about standing on street corners with signs. None of that. If, if you're just going to live for Jesus, though, and you're going to live by the truth, 
You're going to take some hits for it. People all over the world do that already. We had a prayer request come to us, one of our global partners I want to pass on to you. Hopefully you remember to pray for this family. The story begins in a village in a country I can't na name the country to you. I'm only going to give them names, Hiram and Burka. That's not their real names. Hiram, the wife, became a believer. And there in that village where, where you're, you know, if you're a Christian, you get persecuted. You can even be killed. She and the believers were praying together, and she was worried about telling her husband because he was a bit of a, a street thug. But for whatever reason, her husband noticed that something had changed in her life, and he kind of admired it but didn't want it himself. Well, one day, she and the other believers in the village got in trouble. And the authorities said, you either leave or revert back to the faith that we accept in our village and in our country. So they left, and her husband went with her. He's not a believer yet. They're taken to a safe house in another city. Then from the safe house, she and her husband and their kids are taken to a home in another city that some Christians have provided for them. In the whole process, he watches Christ at work and becomes a believer, a follower of Jesus. Not just a follower of Jesus, becomes an evangelist, becomes a discipler of others. He and his wife decide to go back to the original city where they were kicked out of. They go back there and they kind of go incognito and and they begin to share the faith, and they begin to teach, and more people are coming to Christ, and the authorities catch up with them, and they say to them, you either recant and convert back to the faith of this village, or we will take everything you have, and you're out. So they left, and the villagers, the authorities, took over their possessions, their money, their car, everything. And so they've been kind of moving around all over the place, preaching and teaching the gospel until they just, a couple of years ago, felt like God was saying, go back to that original city again. They're like, oh, God, you know, we've already had two bad situations, but we'll be obedient to you. They went back. To their surprise, more people come to faith than even some of the authorities that come to faith in Christ. So they go back, right? And our global partner tells us around 500 to 1,000 people around that village have accepted Christ. But just last year, the authorities caught up with them again and said, you have to leave. So their prayer request is that in 2019, God would show them where to go because, as they said, they are weary. They've moved 13 times. Their lives are always under threat. You see, a lot of what Jesus describes here, people in the world are living and experiencing and we shouldn't be surprised if it ever shows up to our doorsteps. Will we endure? Will we be faithful? I leave you with this final principle. And that is by God's help, jot it down, by God's help, my aim is to rethink the future by living each day as if Christ could return to earth. And you know what? You could just turn around and say to live each day as though it's my last day on earth. But to live that way, may the Lord help me to live that way. May he help you to live that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for caring enough about us, God, to give us a picture of the future, though it's sometimes frightening. I thank you that we're not left alone in the future. You are with us. You said, even the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Hey, God, we here in this country, we know so little about persecution compared to the rest of the world. God, we help us to be faithful. Help us to be wide awake to your truth. Father, as we come to the communion table, I'm reminded of your words to the Apostle Paul who said to the Corinthians and to all of us, that every time we take this meal, we proclaim, we announce the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord, today, we have an opportunity unashamedly to eat this bread that represents your body that was sacrificed for us, to drink this cup that represents your blood that was shed for us. We have an opportunity, Father, to humbly proclaim that we are Christians, Christ followers we don't deserve that title we haven't earned it God it's been bestowed upon us by your grace and for that we are deeply and for the rest of eternity thankful to you